Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before starting this week, I'd like to quickly thank my new patrons on Patreon, Catherine and Anne. I really appreciate all your support, and I'd like to welcome you to this wonderful group of contributors. If you'd like to join them in their generosity, then go to patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast. You can get all the latest news from the show on the Facebook page, and you can also follow me on Twitter at at Queens Podcast. For all my new listeners, welcome. The rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 50, Catherine Howard, Non-Stop Man Drama. I'm usually very distrustful of history books that put too much store in narrative and emotion. Books that imbue the historical figures whom they are describing with values that are too modern, emotive language used to add drama. These can be very good for selling books, but I feel they undermine their scholarly value. The reason for this is not because I am a frightful bore. It's that these authors tend to want to fit the facts around these preconceptions. They see Catherine of Aragon as a jilted wife, so therefore their whole argument revolves around that, dismissing all else. They see Anne Boleyn as a feminist champion of reform, ignoring evidence to suggest that she was no such thing. I lay this out now because I find it so hard not to fall into this trap with Catherine Howard. Let me just read you the subtitles of just a few of the books on her that I have in front of me. The Tragic Story. A Tudor Conspiracy. The Adulterous Wife. The Tudor Tragedy. You can tell immediately where the narrative of these books is going to take you. Of course, I'm not free of the desire to pull you in with a compelling title, and moreover the reason why all these authors have done this, why Catherine Howard is the subject of quite some debate over the last 500 years, is that she is the perfect character if you are writing a tragedy. More than that, she is the perfect character for whatever tragedy that it is you want to write. Want a sexually charged teenager thrust into the lion's den she is completely unprepared for? You can see that, Catherine. Want a naive pawn in the games of more powerful men? You can see that, Catherine. Want a victim of abuse, suffering from the machinations and illicit desires of all the men in her life? You can see that, Catherine. Want a flawed yet well-meaning girl caught between love, desire and duty? She's there too. But with any of my queens, we must clear our heads of preconceived notions and in the words of Lewis Carroll, begin at the beginning once again. The first thing that we must understand about Catherine is that she was a Howard. I've already talked a little about her uncle, but let's go back a little bit into the family tree. The Howards rose to prominence in the early 15th century, 
when the youngest daughter of Thomas Mowbray, the Duke of Norfolk, married Sir Robert Howard. This meant that, after a few decades of civil war and bad luck, the Duchy of Norfolk passed to the Howards, making John Howard, for complicated reasons, the first Duke of Norfolk, even though there had been many Dukes before him. John Howard was an arch-Yorkist, a true believer. He was an intimate of Edward IV and Richard III, but was killed at Bosworth while leading the vanguard. Of course, Henry VII's victory at Bosworth saw the Yorkists kicked out, and the Lancastrians come to power. This was very bad news indeed for the Howards, as few families were as closely identified with the Yorkist regime, especially the despised Richard III as they. John's son, Thomas Howard, the Earl of Surrey, was allowed to keep his head and his title, but was not permitted to inherit the duchy, which lay vacant. He was thrown in the tower, his estates confiscated, but was treated pretty well by the new king, all things considered. He was released in 1489, and began a great project that would dominate the lives of both he and his son. Bring back the glory days of the Howards, rehabilitate their good name. And that is what they did. Slowly but surely, the Howards began to push their way back into royal favour. By 1499, Thomas Howard was back on the King's Council, and he was arranging favourable marriages left, right and centre. Through two marriages, he would have twelve children, and those that did survive found themselves married to dukes and earls, or the daughters of dukes and earls. It was a stunning success. He was put in charge of leading England's armies at home while Henry fought in France, and so it was he that won the stunning victory at the Battle of Flodden. This won him and his line back the title of Duke of Norfolk. It was the end of their redemption cycle, but they would continue to rise as the Howard children, spread among the noble families of England, began to form a power base. We've already met two of his children. First was Elizabeth Howard, who married the Earl of Wiltshire, Thomas Boleyn. I believe you're familiar with their children, Mary, Anne, and George. The second is his eldest son and heir, also called Thomas Howard, because who isn't called Thomas and named after their father in Tudor England? We've encountered him several times, as I mentioned two weeks ago. Inheriting the duchy after the death of his father in 1524, he passed the sentence of death over his niece Anne Boleyn, led the charge to have Thomas Cromwell executed, and helped to give Henry VIII the diplomatic cover to divorce Anne of Cleves. Well, now I will introduce another Howard, the third child and second son of the Duke, Edmund, who was, if we're frank, a bit of a disaster. Perennially plagued by debts run up by his financial incompetence, his choice of wife was entirely based around whom could bring in enough dowry to ease his fiscal problems. His choice was Eucasta Culpepper, whose family could trace the lineage back to Edward I, but most importantly, they had extensive lands across Kent and Sussex. Unfortunately, this marriage brought little money in, and it made him responsible for her children from a previous marriage. He wasn't the brightest tool in the box, was Edmund. Together, he and Eucasta had six children, all but one of whom made it to adulthood, and the fifth of these, and second daughter, was Catherine. As I said, the marriage did nothing to help Edmund's bank account, and debts began to mount to an unsustainable degree, and his wife's family refused to help him out. Eucasta died in 1528, but a second marriage didn't do much to help, and nor did a third. He essentially abandoned his children, shipping them out to relatives and played no role in their upbringing. And so it is here that he leaves our story, and we start talking a little bit more about the subject of this miniseries. Like most daughters of non-royal parents, we can't say for sure when Catherine Howard was born, even to the year. Dates range from about 1518 to 1525, which is astonishing. There is no legal document that tells us for sure, so we're left with statements from witnesses which frankly are not all that useful. The day that I am using is 1522, and this is the date used in her most recent biography by Gareth Russell, 
and is broadly in line with the one that Lacey Baldwin-Smith uses in his biography of Catherine, where he very usefully shows his working. This is also backed up by other historians such as David Lodes and David Starkey. The big problem with not knowing her date of birth is that it completely changes the complexion of the narrative. There is a seven-year difference between these dates, and as we will see, at what age she did certain things and had other things done unto her is vitally important. Not knowing her date of birth is hugely frustrating. You'll be shocked to hear that we also know next to nothing for sure about her childhood, her place of birth, or her early life. As Leslie Baldwin-Smith puts it, quote, The historian can recreate, he can make judicious guesses, he can and often does indulge in wishful thinking, but the fact remains that, except for the accident of becoming Queen Consort of England, Mistress Catherine would have joined the legion of men and women who lived and died without ever having left their mark on history. So, in the absence of hard evidence, let us do some of the historical detective work. It's likely that she was born in Lambeth, just across the river from Westminster, as it seems likely that was where her father was around the time of her birth, due to his position as a Justice of the Peace for Surrey. Then we must skip forward a few years to 1531. Catherine is now about nine or ten. With her mother dead, and her father now in Calais, partly due to a job gained for him by his niece Anne Boleyn, and partly to escape his creditors, Catherine was farmed off to the household of the family matriarch, Agnes Howard, at Chesworth Park in Horsham in Sussex. She was her step-grandmother, and was the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk. The main priority was for her to receive an education at Chesworth, but also to be prepared for a life as a lady of the court. She may have been born to the black sheep of the family, but she was still a Howard. Agnes Howard was a very wealthy woman, and the fourth highest ranking woman in the kingdom, and Chesworth Park was a testament to that. She had over a hundred servants attending to her there, and controlled two dozen estates across the kingdom. Agnes is portrayed in a couple of ways in the accounts that I have read. Some have her as a Catholic school nun kind of figure, stute, austere, unforgiving. Others have her as more of a rather hapless figure, attempting to install discipline but failing at every turn, a view, as we shall see, that I tend to agree with. Chesham, by the time that Catherine arrived, was more of a boarding school than a manor. Scores of little Howards from the many branches of the family, along with some of their dependents, were sent there as a kind of finishing school. In many ways, this is not unlike what had happened to another member of the clan whom we have already met. Anne Boleyn, along with her sister, were farmed off to the court of Margaret of Austria at about the same age as Catherine was. It wasn't at all unusual for noble girls to be educated in this way. The traditional narrative of Catherine's time at Chesham reminds one of a World War II POW camp. Great big dormitories with many children to a bed, noble-born kids treated as servants, their status trampled upon... These writers berate Agnes for their mistreatment of poor Catherine, but really, this fundamentally understands what was actually going on here. These children were being taught how to act around their betters, as essentially, that would be their life. To quote Lacey Baldwin-Smith, quote, Catherine was regarded as an apprentice, learning the secret of good manners and accomplishment. They were considered to be social graces, best inculcated by treating children as indentured domestics and keeping them from idleness. Indeed, it seems that Catherine received a rather gilded time of it at Chesham. As grandchildren of the Duchess, she and her brother Henry, who was also there, would have been the two highest ranked of Agnes's charges. If they entered a room, every other child had to stand. They issued orders to servants, determined the makeup of their dormitories, and were positioned prominently at mealtimes, as if they were the king and queen of the children, and, frankly, got away with anything they wanted. Now, about these dorms... 
It may seem weird to us that the children of high nobility would share beds with one another in large dormitories, but that is to use a very 20th century mindset. Beds were hugely expensive items, and it was not unusual for poorer families to all squeeze up together in the family bed, mothers, fathers and children alike. Shared accommodation was also the norm in some of the lower nobility. Now, of course, the high nobility themselves did not act in this. They had the money to allow themselves much greater luxury. But the point here was to teach these children discipline and deference, and thus, this was the way it was. Catherine's quarters were in the maiden's chamber, called so for obvious reasons, and she shared it with a number of girls of similar rank. Gareth Russell describes her education thusly. Quote, her schooling had focused on teaching her how to read, write, walk, talk, stand, dance, and move in a way guaranteed to please her contemporaries, but not much else. This all meant that she was far from being stupid, but her upbringing was far more in line with someone like Anne of Cleves and Jane Seymour than the unusually broad and extensive educations given to Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn. By all accounts, then, far from living a life under mistrunchable, things seem to have been going pretty well for Catherine. So let's fast forward again to 1536, the same year that her cousin Anne was executed. Then it was decided that she needed to start music lessons. Dun dun dun! She would have been about 13 or 14 at the time, which was a little late for such things. The teacher was Henry Mannix. He was in his late teens or very early 20s, and was... Well, let's just say that he took far more than a professional interest in his charges. He had already seduced many of Catherine's friends. For being generous, we might call him a cad. For being harsh, we would call him a sexual predator. To call him that, though, I think fundamentally misunderstands the standards of the time. Yes, now we would consider a young teenager fooling around with a guy about five or six years older than him as being illegal and damaging to the child, but this was not the standard of the day. Now, I'm going to level with you. When I started work on Catherine Howard, I thought that I would be writing the story of an abused child, as that seems to be quite fashionable at the moment. But having done the research, I've been forced to come to a different conclusion. Throughout our story, girls could be married at 12, and though these marriages were rarely consummated at that age, it was not unusual for young brides to have children at around 14 or 15 years of age. Teenage girls engaging in flings and marriages with men many times their own age was not that unusual. Hell, it isn't unusual today, nor is it any more unusual than today for girls in their mid-teens to be sexually active. The fact that the daughters of the nobility engaged in affairs of the heart and body before marriage was one of those open secrets that no one talked about. Sure, not all of them did. Indeed, if you were sensible, you didn't. Take Anne Boleyn as an example. But it was very common. That is not to say that child abuse was not understood at this time, nor that it went unpunished. It's just that their standards were very different, and we must understand that. This is all to say that I'm not going to be expressing outrage in this episode about Catherine's flings with various men as a teenager, but I will admit that, with my 21st century hat on, it makes me feel a little uncomfortable. But as I have said before in this show, to quote L.P. Hartley, the past is a foreign country, they do things different there. Anyway, back to Henry Mannix. When she first met her music teacher, she was in her early teens, and by all accounts, very flirtatious. Yet she was so in the accepted standards of the time. At a very young age, she seems to have already mastered the ease of courtly love. She was enticing, but never let things go too far, at least at first. In fact, the most inappropriate thing about this relationship was not the gap in age, it was the gap in status. Mannix was a low-born noble, Catherine was a Howard. Moreover, she knew it, and so Mannix resorted to begging, pleading his love for the young Catherine... This did mean that Catherine was put under a degree of pressure, 
and the fact that he was an old man placed in a position of authority may have added to the enticement, but the fact that the relationship never went all the way shows that she was really the one in control. The affair was likely an open secret in the dorms of Chesham, but was unknown by the Dowager Duchess. That is, until she ran in on them making out in an alcove of the chapel one night. Mannix had finally extracted from Catherine a promise that she would allow him to progress from first to second base, and so they went somewhere where they mistakenly thought they would not be disturbed. Agnes Howard was furious, slapping Catherine a few times, and vowing that they should never be left alone together again. The Dowager Duchess said a lot of things, but did not have a whole lot of follow-through, and so Catherine and Mannix continued to fool around for at least another year. Their relationship appears to have moved from second to maybe third base in the intermediary. In her trial, she described it thusly, quote, At the flattering and fair persuasions of Mannix, being but a young girl, I suffered him at sundry times to handle and touch the secret parts of my body, which neither became me with honesty permit, nor him to require. However, it all ended abruptly, when a new servant in the household challenged Mannix, saying that the relationship was highly unwise, as he could never marry her, and his life could be at risk. He responded, mm, well, let's say not well. Now, I would like to keep my clean rating on iTunes, so I will bleep out a word in this quote. But so you know, it's exactly as bad as the word you think it is. Quote, Hold thy peace, woman. I know her well enough. I have had her by the c- and she hath said to me that I shall have a maidenhead, though it be painful to her, not doubting but I will be good to her hereafter. These words spread through the household like wildfire, and Catherine was shocked that the guy whom she had been fooling around with for so long was such a pig. Now about 15 or 16, Catherine had a strong sense of her own worth, and she would not be spoken of in such a manner. In the face of some more ignoble pleading from Mannix, she ended the relationship. I do feel that the fact that it was her that ended the relationship here was key. She had the agency, and she took the step, and though the two were seen together again, it seems their 18-month fling was... Before I introduce the next man in Catherine's life, I think it worth briefly pausing to ask what she looked like, as it seems that she attracted many a man in her life, and that cannot only be put down to her noble name and charming persona. We don't have very much in the way of a reliable description. She will be described by the French ambassador as being, quote, a young lady of moderate beauty, but very graceful. A more positive review came from a former courtier who called her, quote, flourishing in youth with beauty fresh and pure. She was short and slender, just as Tudor men liked. She had dark blonde hair, was fair-skinned, and generally seemed very vivacious. We have no idea how she dressed while in Agnes's household. One imagines fairly demurely given the training she was undertaking, but she would later follow in her late cousin Anne Boleyn in wearing the latest French wares. But that's... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So in the future, by now, Duchess Agnes's household had been to Lambeth, just across the river from Henry's Palace at Whitehall, and a new and altogether more dangerous man had entered the picture, Francis Derham. Now, much like Mannix, Derham had already had his way with many of the young ladies in the maiden's chamber, a title which seems to have been purely for show by this point. To read some accounts, it was seen that Catherine's friends had a parade of lovers wandering in and out. Catherine would later say that this was, quote, as well at the request of me as of others. When Catherine first met Derham, he was the lover of Joan Ackworth, her roommate slash ally slash secretary, because, of course, she had a secretary. But quickly, his eye was drawn to her. At the time, he was about 23, so only a little older than Mannix. Derham was a distant relation of Catherine's, but from far lower stock. The son of a wealthy Lincolnshire gentleman, he had been taken in by the Dowager Duchess to do some work for the family, mostly involving the procurement of livestock. He and his friend and fellow scoundrel Edward Waldegrave seemed to be having a whale of a time in Agnes's service. The usual practice was this. They would raid the kitchens, bring up wine, fruit, sweet treats, and bring them up to the maiden's chamber late at night. There, they would engage in a great deal of flirting and fooling around. If someone from the household came to see what all the noise was, they would hide in a special curtained gallery. Apparently this was Catherine's idea. This is all beginning to sound a lot more like a teen sex romp. How long it was that Catherine and Darren were involved is unknown, but we do know that she went further with him than with Mannix. Their relationship started in the usual way with an exchange of tokens to show their affection for each other. She sent him an armband. He reciprocated with a linen shirt. Steadily they progressed through the bases until they eventually consummated their affair. She herself would later claim that they only had been in a sexual relationship for about four months, though it's entirely possible that it was for longer than that. Unlike with her former music teacher, where she had broadly been the cool one, here she was the love-struck teenager she is so often portrayed as being. That they were involved together was not unknown to the Dowager Duchess, though she didn't know that they were having sex. She caught them at least twice making out in the galleries, but, just like before, she did not take serious action to prevent it from continuing. Many of the descriptions that would later emerge of their affair are really quite cute in some ways. Catherine was described as being, quote, so far in love, and that, quote, they would kiss and hang by their bellies together as if they were two sparrows. To add to the way that this all sounds like a teen comedy, we also have the sensible one, who warns against the dangers of their sexually charged friends. Alice Wilkes, who apparently was so annoyed by being kept awake by the, quote, puffing and blowing going on around her, that she asked to be allowed to move bed so that she might get a decent kip. She also warned Catherine that what she was doing was highly dangerous. What if she got caught? God forbid, what if she got pregnant? Showing that she felt invincible at that time, Catherine brushed aside Alice's advice, saying, quote, A woman might meddle with a man and yet conceive no child unless she would herself. It's worth saying again that with the risk of sounding like a prude, Alice Wilkes was completely right. While everyone here is enjoying the fruits of youth and having a good old time, these girls were playing with fire. 
Just look at what has happened already to Henry's wives who have been accused of not being virgins upon marriage. And this was not an isolated incident. Virginity was the most important thing that a young lady had to her name in the marriage market. Without it, she had very little hope of gaining a good match, which makes it all the more negligent to the Dowager Duchess that she failed to keep control over the sex den developing within her household. England, though, does seem to have been at this time a more sexually liberated place than elsewhere in Europe. While other courts of Europe had plenty of sexcapades of their own, in England it appears this was done far more openly and with far less ceremony. The lady jealously guarding her good name was becoming a rarer thing. There were not as many Anne Boleyns and Jane Seymours about. But that said, the old ways still stood for something, and did the best marriages you needed to have a reputation beyond repute. Catherine was still very much playing with fire here, and she knew it, though perhaps given her young age, she did not fully grasp the full dangers of what she was doing. Darren was still a low-born young man with no real prospects, while Catherine was still a Howard, and the relationship would come into jeopardy in a piece of spectacular petty jealousy. Henry Mannix now re-enters the picture, as he was still rather upset with Catherine, and was furious that she was having sex with her paramour when she had refused to do so with him. Therefore, after no doubt many nights of weeping at her picture as rain streamed down his window, he decided to turn tattletale. He composed a letter to the Dowager Duchess, letting her know that if she went up to the maiden's chamber late at night, she would, quote, see that which shall displease you. It appears that she was literally the only one in the household that didn't know what was going on, as everyone else was either under Catherine's spell or was too afraid to talk. But now that Agnes Howard knew, she attempted to come down hard. She raged at the servants for failing to keep the girls in check. But Catherine seems to have escaped suspicion and found out that it was Mannix who had written the letter. She told Derham, who was furious with Mannix, but their affair would not escape the Dowager Duchess's attention for too much longer. She would finally catch them one more time, whereupon she completely lost control, literally throwing punches at Catherine and Derham. And yet... Even then, she refused to dismiss Derham when her duties as a guardian should have led her to send him and his mate far, far away. She most probably didn't know the worst of it, suspecting their relationship to be just a lot of moderate petting, but she certainly failed in her duty of care here. I've already said that I do not agree with the child abuse narrative that's been peddled by some writers with regard to Catherine, but there is some blame to apply. I will place it squarely on Agnes Howard. Really here, Catherine was doing what I imagine many other teenagers, past and future, would do if exposed to this kind of unsupervised, sexually charged environment. Derham too was only doing what seems perfectly natural. They were of an age when sex was permitted, and they were doing it. Catherine had been sent to Chesham and now to Lambeth to be taught how to be a lady, how to conduct herself with propriety, decorum and chastity. If she ever got those lessons, she clearly did not take them to heart. Agnes Howard had a duty of care to these girls, and she failed spectacularly. And things were about to get even worse, because Derham began to hear wedding bells. He seemed to be delusional enough to think that they could get married. They began to refer to each other as husband and wife, and he began to pester her to agree to marry him officially. She knew this was impossible, and beyond playing house, she never agreed to anything. Eventually, as with Mannix, she tired of Derham when he tried to make things serious. Catherine, I think, was a little in love with Derham, but even she knew a lost cause when she saw one. She had ambitions of her own, and he would only hold him back. And yet, and yet, she had referred to him as her husband, and they'd had a lot of sex. One could very much argue that this amounted to a pre-contract of marriage, 
especially since there was no requirement for such things written down. In Derham's eyes, they were engaged. But for now, Catherine's view won through, and the relationship ended in 1539, having lasted just over a year. But, believe me, this is far from the last time we will talk about Francis Derham. Okay, so as Catherine prepares to leave the maiden's chamber and be thrust into the world, let's take a quick look at the situation at the beginning of 1540. Anne of Cleves was on her way to London to become Queen of England. Margaret de la Pole and many of the other former Yorkers had been executed. A Bible, translated into English, was published, and many other smaller things, which all caused Norfolk and Cromwell to come into open conflict. Norfolk was a leading religious conservative, as I've already spoken about, and had been engaged in some pretty serious risky business by picking a fight with Cromwell. Norfolk needed to surround the king with as many Howards and their allies as possible, and a key battleground was the make-up of the new queen's household. Two of Henry's wives had been plucked from the ladies-in-waiting of former wives, and their ranks also contained many of his former mistresses, most notably Bessie Blount. Moreover, a queen was seen as being an influence on a king, and so, by proxy, influencing the queen allowed one to influence the king through her. And so, in the autumn of 1539, Norfolk managed to secure a position for three members of his clan, Catherine Carey, the daughter of Mary Boleyn, Mary Norris, and, most importantly, his niece, Catherine Howard. Catherine was understandably delighted by this. She later said that, quote, All that knew me and kept my company knew how glad and desirous I was to come to the court. And so it was that Catherine Howard left her finishing school and was thrust into the Tudor court. It was now time to put her education to the test. Some sources speak of an instant and strong attraction on Henry's part when he first met Catherine. But if that was true, and there is no particular reason to doubt it, then it seems clear that he did not act upon it. He was still very excited about his upcoming nuptials with this German beauty coming from Cleves. Now, of course, we all know how that went, so I won't bore you with rehashing it. So let's look at it all from Catherine's perspective. Her job was as a Lady of Honour, one of the lower ranks held by ladies in the Queen's household. Her jobs would have involved supervising the servants as they went about the day-to-day business, accompanying Anne to mass and to court, that sort of thing. This meant that she had access to the Queen's private rooms, an honour not granted to many. Chesham and Lambeth had not exactly been dour, but nothing could have prepared Catherine for the splendour of the and with her natural sense of style and easy charm, she fit in very easily. She also had a great number of family about, some of whom she may never have met before, including her cousins Henry and Mary Howard, the children of the Duke of Norfolk. In a shock turn of events, one of the first things that Catherine did at court was find a new man. Thomas Culpepper was, much like Mannix and Darren before him, a son of country gentry, and was related to Catherine, being her sixth cousin. He was a handsome devil, there's no denying it, Tall, handsome, athletic, and a snappy dresser, he caught the eye of many a lady, not to mention the king, who seems to have seen a little of his younger, better self in young Culpepper. Despite his lowly station, he rose high in his employ and owed a great deal of property. Even more so than with Catherine's other relationships, their courtship followed the strict rules of cultly love. They flirted to announce the attraction. He pursued, she resisted, he pursued more, she gave a little, he still persisted. But here it seems is where they hit the snag. Culpepper was used to women simply falling at his feet, but Catherine was playing the game more orthodoxly than that. Culpepper told her that he loved her, but she did not reply in kind, and certainly did not sleep. Eventually, he moved on to easier targets, which apparently reduced Catherine to tears. Of course, everyone in the Queen's household knew about this, but honestly, this is not really anything out of the ordinary, except perhaps for the strength of feeling expressed by Catherine after it ended. I think that even now, she loved Culpepper, but because of that, she didn't want to ruin it by having sex too soon. 
There is also the fact that this was the first time she had ever been dumped, and the feeling did not apparently suit her. News of their relationship travelled across the river to Lambeth, where Darren was apparently furious that Catherine had moved on so quickly, and even more so when he heard rumours that she intended to marry Culpepper. He rounded on her, accusing her of betraying him with his proposed marriage. She, however, being no shrinking violet, is said to have retorted, quote, What should you trouble me there with? For you know I will not have you, and if you have heard such report, you heard more than I do know. But for now, Catherine had far more important things to do than dally with these, her various flings, because her new mistress had arrived in England. Catherine would have been present during all the festivities that accompanied the marriage with Anne of Cleves, from the wedding, the feast, to the all-important bedding ceremony. She would have been party to the gossip and speculation about the non-consummation of the marriage. We talked in Anne's series about the influence of Norfolk in laying the groundwork for Henry's annulment by breaking up the already shaky alliance between Charles V and Francis I. Well, once he returned from the continent in February, he and his ally Bishop Gardner set about consolidating their victory by winning power at court. Now, a traditional view of this is Gardner and Norfolk acting as part pimps, part Mrs. Bennets, essentially throwing their pretty young charge at Henry until finally he fell for her in order to gain political advantage. This seems both a little gross and a little simplistic. We know that Henry had already met and become rather captivated by Catherine Howard, even before all of this had started. It was Catherine's natural beauty and charm what won it, not the evil machinations of Norfolk and Gardner. Gareth Russell, in his biography of Catherine, makes the very cogent point that if it was Norfolk's plan to entice the king with one of his family members, then surely he would have done due diligence. They were not aware of her past with Derham and Mannix, but everyone back at Lambeth knew that they didn't either makes them as negligent as the Dowager Duchess, or just part players in the game of lust, as Henry fell for Catherine. Now, I don't want to go too far with this line of argument. Of course Norfolk and Gardner played a big part in all, but to quote Russell, quote, Her family seemed to have played the hand dealt of them. They would have been foolish not to. That is not the same thing as stacking the deck. Catherine knew what she was doing. She knew that Henry was attempting to annul his marriage, and that if she played her cards right, she could take the crown. She sought advice from her family on how best to proceed, on what the best way to entertain Henry was, that sort of thing. For propriety, Catherine was moved back to Lambeth so that she would appear appropriately chaperoned. Clearly the idea that moving back there would make propriety less likely did not occur to anyone. Henry started to spend more and more evenings in Lambeth rather than at Greenwich, and his ostentatiously large barge moored outside would have alerted everyone to his intention. We don't know whether they consummated their affections at this point, but I think it unlikely. A time-honoured tactic in ensnaring Henry was to refuse him sex until marriage. Anne Boleyn and Jane Seymour had shown this to everyone. Now, Catherine did not necessarily have their discipline, but I'm not certain that Henry would have married Catherine if they had already had sex. If they had done so, I think it more likely that she would have become yet another mistress of the king. As it was, she was now a potential replacement for Anne. As you will recall, the early summer of 1540 was a month of turmoil at court, as Cromwell fell and proceedings began to annul the king's marriage. Henry's attraction to Catherine was a part of his desire to get this done, but in reality, I think it was a small part. I think that even if she had not been about, he would have done the same damn thing. After Anne of Cleves agreed to Henry's demands and accepted the end of their marriage, it did not take long for Henry to begin proceedings to marry for a fifth time. We don't know when the engagement took place, but one imagines that it must have taken place in the spring, for Henry was very busy in that early summer dealing with the complexities of the end. But of course, for the Howards, there was the great elephant in the room, that Catherine, it could be argued was pre-contracted to Francis Derham. Norfolk probably didn't know, but plenty of others did, 
and it did not take long for potential blackmailers to surface. Under the veneer of friendship, Catherine's former friend-slash-secretary, Joan Ackworth, now Joan Bulmer, wrote to Catherine to congratulate her on her upcoming nuptials and to ask for a place in her household. The key is to read between the lines here, so here are a few excerpts. After making her request, she says, quote, If you could write to my husband and command him to bring me to you, he wouldn't disobey. Quote, I beseech you to find a place for me. Quote, I would write more unto you, but I dare not be so bold, for considering the great honour you are towards, it did not become me to put myself in your presence, but the remembrance of the perfect honesty I have always known to be in you. Quote, I know the Queen of Britain will not forget her secretary. Catherine, either taking the hint or missing the point completely, and thinking it would be a right hoot to have her former partner in crime back in her life, did as Joan requested, and so someone with intimate knowledge of her wild youth was now in her inner circle. She would not be the last relic of her past to end up surrounding her when she became queen. Cue ominous music. But, for now, everything was good. Henry was to have another small private wedding, with only a few ladies and gentlemen of the Privy Chamber present. The ceremony was carried out by the Bishop of London on the 28th of July, 1540. We don't know much about the ceremony, but one assumes it followed a similar playbook from his marriage to Anne of Cleves, so I shan't rehash. The main difference, though, between this and the marriage to Anne of Cleves, though, was the wedding night. Catherine, it seems, did a successful impression of a virgin, and Henry was reported to have left the next morning in high spirits. He finally had a wife whom he considered attractive enough. The marriage was far from ideal in many ways. It brought nothing except more court intrigue. No dowry, no foreign alliance, no security abroad. But it did bring the possibility of a second son, and the chance for him to feel young again. And that was enough for Henry. Once again, England had a Howard on the throne, but the seeds of her downfall had already been sown. That's all for this week. Next time, we will see the spectacular fall of Henry's youngest wife, as the past that she wasn't really even running from caught up with her. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.